Hello and welcome to episode 43 of Double Reel, the monthly magazine podcast for the discerning film nerd. It's November 2023 and the news is so shit it's not even possible to come up with an ironic reference to it. We're here to get you through the month with a big helping of cinematic content for your waiting ears. My name's James Adamson and I'm a film nerd with a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema, and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Hello, thank you for that lovely introduction. It's good to be back. We aim to provide you with the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. We divide each monthly issue into four parts, which we release a week at a time to keep your feed fed through the month. This is the first part of the episode, Double Real Monthly. We'll look at recent film news, what new releases are heading our way, and review any new films we've seen since the last episode. We'll also discuss how we're getting on with the film-related resolutions we made for 2023. We'll shortly be releasing our next instalment, the Penalty Shootout Film Quiz, and next week we'll deliver our regular features, Classics and Recommended, Hidden Gem, the one that got away in the remake Hate Watch. The following week it'll be The Big Conversation, where we talk about a topic from the world of film in more detail. We'll tell you more about that later, and there are more details about all of our features on our various social media channels. If you want to check that out or comment on the podcast, you can find us on Twitter on at DoubleRealFilm. There's also an Instagram account called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can follow us on letterbox.com slash DoubleReal, where we list all the films we discussed on the podcast and much more besides. You can also find the Double Real Podcast on the new social media platforms Threads and Mastodon for how long they survive. If you like the podcast, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you use, as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world. Now it's time to dim the lights and take your seats for our latest Double Real Monthly. Hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. Double Real Monthly is the first part of the episode and gives you a regular digest of news, new releases and how we've been fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. In the next hour and a bit, you'll get a breakdown of what's going on in the world of film this month that will set you up for your own movie watching. As well as that, at the start of each year, we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we've set for ourselves in 2023. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see for a better cinematic experience. Also, just to quickly mention the other podcast we do, which you might like to check out. The Adamson's Versus is where we step away from the world of film and talk about stories, news, and anything else that's caught our attention. It has been a little while since we've done one, and we're going to try and do another one for you soon, but our most recent episode, The Adamson's Versus AI, is out now for you to listen to. With that piece of self-promotion out of the way, let's look at some messages we received from listeners. We'll be discussing Killers of the Flower Moon later, and May says, I watched Scorsese's latest, a much-hyped and arse-numbingly long epic, proving once again that the greed of man knows no limits. It was good, but it felt long, and I don't mean the running time itself. Stuart also saw it and says you can tell it was made for streaming, and Scorsese felt like he could go to any length and spend any amount of money to tell the story. Perhaps he was just happy not to have Weinstein looking over his shoulder anymore and made the most of it. We also have David Finch's new film, The Killer, on the menu, and Big says, Strange film, weirdly interesting, although not much happens except in the hitman's inner voice for long periods, but that voice reflects and sometimes contradicts what's actually happening in his reality. It reminded me of that Charlie Watts quote where his touring life was mostly hanging about interspersed with short periods of heightened activity. 
The heightened activity in this film was pretty violent and merciless, but I was strangely drawn to the concept of long periods of seemingly mindless surveillance and waiting, and amused by the pseudonymous travel and hotel names used by the protagonist, except, of course, using sitcom character names would have drawn the attention he was purportedly wanting to avoid. Uh, put it better than I could have done. Um, Dean says, I thought it was very poor, the killer. He was a shit assassin as well. The story depends on being unprepared and error-prone when carrying out a hit. The only thing I was entertained by was spotting the amusing false names he used. So, mixed reviews there. Our Cronenberg entry this month is Dead Ringers, and Tom says this might be Cronenberg's most disturbing film because, as wild as it is, it seems very rooted in reality. The new series with Rachel Weisz is very good as well. Uh, thanks for all your messages. Uh, we always love to hear from you. Now on with the Double Room Monthly episode. First thing we talk, talk about usually is news. So, James, what news has caught your eye? Um... Now, I've kind of been thrown off because I saw some news yesterday that kind of made me really happy, and it was to do with Bruce Willis. And it's kind of made me forget all the other news that I had planned to talk about. Um, I thought it was a bit of a quiet month, um, but see, there was a video of Bruce Willis with his uh, granddaughter at Disney World. No, I didn't see that. Because obviously he's had a very rough couple of years um, with his initial is it aphasia diagnosis. Yeah, and, and, then and, and dementia as well, yeah. Like in the past few months, it's kind of progressed to dementia. Um, but he looked very happy with his granddaughter, and it was nice to see him just kind of smiling and um, enjoying his private life. Um, That's nice. Um, but it, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really notice much else. Well, well shall I? Uh, shall I? Um, <clears throat> I've got a couple of things to mention. If I knock them out, you the things, the other things you might want to talk about might. It come might back be to you. the things I was planning to talk about. Later, yeah. But. So it's been announced that the SAG-AFTRA strike is over, so the actors' strike in America has come to an end. Uh, same thing as with the writers' strike. They've got a provisional agreement, which they now write up in detail. So the strike is over and people can go back to work. Uh, people are generally saying this is this is kind of just in time to mount a bit of a uh, like promotional marketing campaign for films that are nominated for the Oscars. Uh, that might have focused minds on both sides to come to a deal. Both sides seem... You know, reasonably satisfied with where they've got to. Like like the writers' strike, I don't think you know immediately who's won, who's lost, and what the long term impacts are. So it's probably one that we'll come back to. Do you know what I mean? We might, you know, look look back in a few months, and someone will have done a really good analysis of what's happened. But um, it did go on for a few months. So I think we're still, like with the writers, uh, going to see the effects next year of a lot of productions being delayed. But for now. People are happy and it, they're swinging into award season. Um, another one I... Sorry, mate, I didn't get a chance to comment on that, sorry. No, it's fine. Um, I did see that, but I was a bit confused and I wanted to discuss it with you because I thought the deal had already kind of been agreed or was that just that it was agreed last month and it's kind of been approved in the past couple of days kind of thing? No, this is just, this is the other strike. This is the actors. Oh, the previous, right, that, the previous, that's why I was confused. Then. Yeah, the previous previous one was the writer's strike, the other one was the, the actor's strike. The, the last to do with AI? Uh, or... um, among other things, and like, like, like the writer's strike, it's not AI in itself, it's the absolutely dastardly use that the executives want to put it to. Right. So it's like... Uh, it's like, you know, you're not, they're not trying to deny the possibility of AI, it's just at least pay the actors for their contribution and don't treat them like shit. It's the same thing with the writers, because what they wanted to do was um, have the right to take an AI version of you and then do anything you like with it ever. So if a Nazi takes over a, a production company, um, 
you know, a Jewish progressive actor can have an AI version of themselves promoting Nazi propaganda and there'll be nothing they can do about it. And, and, not, and not only that, they'll not get paid for like future use of their image. Um, right, and, okay. and, and like actors or extras and also they wanted actors to kind of sign this at the beginning and never have a chance to kind of improve it so when they're a starving like waiter trying to make it as an actor this giant corporation wants to put a contract in front of you where you basically sign your life away so it's not really about AI it's about the fucking exploitation by people who already have three yachts but seem to want another one frankly right okay um I'm sure they have their own side of things that they're trying to be cost effective and everything else, but you know, don't spend two hundred million dollars on shit films. You want to save money? Do you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> the other one is uh, another story. I don't know if you heard about this, but Warner like shelved or cancelled the release of another completed film. No, what film was that? So you know, there was the whole thing with with that Batgirl movie, Batgirl, which is now yeah. never going to see the light of day. Well, this one was. It's called Coyote versus Acme, and it was starring John Cena, and it's. Warner have gone back to this thing they've done a couple of times, like Looney Tunes back in action. And I guess the Space Jam thing was them as well, where they're trying to kind of leverage their old kind of cartoon characters like Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. And in this one, it's a comic film, or it's like a comedy film, uh, imagining what would happen if Wile E. Coyote from the Roadrunner films took, like, sued Acme because none of the products that he paid for worked. You know, like the anvils, really and, the anvils and the rocket and everything else. There's always a risk that it's a one-joke film, but the weird thing is is that they've had the idea, someone's written a script, they've made a movie, they've got John Cena starring in it, and then the CEO of uh, of Warner's, whose uh, name is Zaslov, has been catching some flack this year for his business plans not working, seems to have said he just wants to cancel it to claim like a $30 million tax credit. And the people making the film are like, we made a fucking film, why can't we just watch the film? Do you know what I mean? They would have easily made that money. I, I, I would have seen that film. I would have gone to see that film. It's just so weird. Now, having written that down on, on, on like sort of my list of news that I'm going to talk about, I was kind of looking back at the story, and they've had a reprieve. Warner's not going to be releasing it, but they have given the makers of the film permission to go and find their own distributor, so it might come out. But it's just so weird that like that's Warner and Disney now who seem don't seem to actually be interested in releasing films. But they still make the films and then don't fucking release them or stick them on streaming. And it's really weird what's going on over there. They just, I feel like there are people in the boardroom who've lost the plot. This this feels like the 60s all over again where the people in charge have completely lost touch with what they need to do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, they've, never, they've never really had the best reputation, these Hollywood execs. But it's not exactly surprising that and we've said it so many times, if a film isn't going to make you $2 billion or even a $1 billion and it isn't the same rehash plot of Star Wars or a Disney live-action remake or, you know, a Marvel superhero film, then they're, they're not going to really give a fuck about it. Even if it's a... Like, it's a, it's a funny idea, that. The idea of Coyote suing Acme. I think that would have been a really good... Um, it might it might have been utter shit, you know, like you say, it might have been a one a one joke pony and that was it. But it could have also been quite good fun. Yeah, you take you take your chances, right? But that's the, the point in spending like a tenner on a cinema ticket and finding out. But that but that's that's the thing, right? The decision about whether that's a shit idea for a film normally gets made by the people in charge of the film company before they make the movie. 
but they've gone and spent quite a lot of money. It's not like a $200 million film, but it's still quite expensive film. And he goes, well, the thing is, and for, by all accounts, they've done it for a t- because they reckon they can get a $30 million tax write-down for like, basically it'll take $30 million off their tax bill if they if they essentially like scrap this film. It's like, well, the, cap, the, the corporation tax rate in America is 21%. So if you want to be $30 million like better off as a result of this movie, fucking release it. Do you know what I mean? You only need to make a profit of about $50 million to make more than that than the tax write-down you're going to get. I don't f- fucking understand Warners at all. When Christopher Nolan left and he said that Warners is basically turning, rapidly turning from like one of the best people at making films to basically one of the worst people at making streaming pr- content, and everyone's going around, Nolan's biting the hand that feeding him. He's been proved 100% right. He walked out and said, they fucking lost it in there. You know the way Roy Keane left Sunderland and said that used to be a football club? That's what Christopher Nolan said about Warners. He's been proved 100% right. Yeah. Fuck knows, because I don't know what would go through someone's head. Like, like obviously it's for a, a tax credit, but would you not rather make a film that might get 5.5 out of 10 on IMDb and... Some critics like think it's okay. Some critics absolutely pan it, but it makes a hundred and fifty odd million. Do you reckon the worry genuinely was that it was a fucking Looney Tunes and Looney Tunes doesn't have that pull? I don't know. I, 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 it just, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. It's some like posters have been quite funny on on the socials the other day. They said that it actually means that the uh, the, the 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 amazing thing about Barbie is not that it was as good as it was, but it was that Warner's let them release it at all. Because you. <laughs> Because I mean, I mean, apparently this loop, this this acme, this coat vest, we've cost like seventy million dollars. But you know that that's that's a big enough like amount of money that they'll still scrap the movie. Imagine if they scrapped the Barbie film. That was a hundred and forty million dollar film. Imagine if they'd scrapped that for a tax write off instead of making one point five billion dollars at the box office. It's just, it's like they're in the business of making movies. I don't fucking yeah. Look, it's we go round around circles trying to wonder what the fuck they're up to, but. It just shows that Warner and Disney at the moment both have CEOs in charge where everyone is scratching their heads wondering what the fuck they're doing. Did that give you a chance to kind of uh, sort of recall the, the other things you were going to talk about? I have more. <laughs> no, I, don't, I, don't, I genuinely don't think it was that busy a month, unless someone passed away and I've completely forgot about it. But I don't think... no, no, Not that I've seen. I, I was going to yeah. quickly mention that the Marvels has come out and is doing financially the worst... Of, of any Marvel film ever, hell. which I think is a, you know what it's like. The usual people are jumping on the fact that oh well, it's because nobody likes Brie Larson or because they've gone woke and they've got like you know non-white sort of leading cast members. But why was Ant Man so shit then? Do you know what I mean? It's like it's clearly this is just Marvel's been falling for a while now, and this is them hitting rock bottom, as I think all you can say. And they they hardly even promoted this film. I saw one trailer for this movie like I a didn't week. Even know it was coming out, man. Yeah, like, they, they've, they've kind of. I mean, uh, James Gunn is doing something similar at DC, and the thing is, he has been he has been asked to come in and start a new era. But you can see that DC and James Gunn are kind of going, yeah, here comes a new Aquaman film, but it's kind of it's not it's not something I worked on. So watch it if you want, but I'm busy with the new era. Do you know what I mean? So DC are doing the same thing. It's almost like they've said, "Look, let's drop it. Let's get it out there. Forget it. We've kind of they've got to go back to the drawing board." And it this is this is just I think a symptom of Marvel fatigue, superhero fatigue, and Disney have lost the plot. 
Um, and it's, you know, this film just kind of sneaked out. This is the second time they've done a Captain Marvel film where she's one of the best superheroes because she was really instrumental in Endgame. And they just don't seem to have put much effort into making a good movie because I think it's it's been a long time coming. Marvel seems to just, whether it's Marvel or whether it's Disney, I'd say Disney. Disney just lost their touch. This is what yeah. this is. I, I, I heard something quite interesting the other day, which kind of tells you something about why they're not doing as well as they're doing. You know, they do all, all the things with the films are the same here. Someone said the special effects look shit. The usual thing where they treat the visual effects houses like crap, give them not enough time and not enough money to do a good job, and then wonder why everyone criticizes the CGI. Um, but it, I think it's just a, a, this is a really good, I think, um, emblem of, of why the MCU is, is, is fucked and why Disney is fucked. Is you know all these Star Wars and um, Marvel TV shows they've been making. It's not just that they've been making too many of them, and like people are like, whatever, nothing's a big deal anymore. They haven't actually been hiring experienced showrunners to make those programs. They've, they've just been making it and then hoping it sells. They've just been getting like an executive from like the Disney boardroom to be in charge of production, and literally everyone's going, no, look at all the successful TV shows. They had a showrunner. They had someone who was that combination of writer and producer who would like guide the show from beginning to end. And if you want to look at examples of like that, not work, if it not working when you don't do that properly, look at the walking dead when they had a good showrunner, it went well, they had a showrunner who was out of his depth. It went to, it went to shit. They didn't even have a showrunner at all because he just said, Oh, we'll just stick it out. It's like, they don't think the rules apply to them. They don't think the rules of fucking gravity and what works in a movie or a TV show works for them. Applies to them. That's that's why it's going wrong. They they fucking. The the question is, are they going to actually reset? Are they actually going to work out what to do? Because you know they, in in terms of mainstream blockbuster cinema, they wiped everything else off up the ball off the board in the twenty tens, right? You know, apart from like Mission Impossible and Bond, which are kind of their own thing anyway. It's been really hard for any other kind of franchise or big movie to make it. So now it's everyone after like Endgame went, okay, well you've kind of you've won what. Off you go, and they've fucking lost the plot. So the question is, are they going to reset and actually come up with something big, or is basically they're going to be this big, big gaping hole left in the summer now, you know? Yeah, I think there's an interesting point you made there about the fact that the only films to make lots of money out with Disney-owned brands are also these like long-term existing you know, franchises of Mission Impossible, Fast and Furious, and Bond. No, that, that, you so, know, it's like they've all been around a very long time. When was the yeah. last time someone came up with a new successful franchise? Made, you know? Yeah, yeah. So look, you know, the, the the they've got the money and the talent working for them to bounce back. So it's up to them, really. Um, a couple, a couple of quick ones because uh, you know we we do, you know, don't want to spend it all. You know, we're we're not a news podcast. Don't spend all day on the news. Um, they've announced the Highlander reboot with the director of the John Wick films and starring Henry Cavill. Okay, uh, I guess there's more chance of a convincing Scottish accent uh, than when they had Christopher Lambert in the main part, but I'm I'm, 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 I'm I'm not enthused by that idea. I am, however, quite enthused by this idea. Denzel Washington is making a movie, a Roman-era kind of action epic about Hannibal. You know, the is he car- playing Hannibal? Pardon? Is he going to play Hannibal? Yeah, the Carthaginian general who... Um, He's a bit old for that. Yeah, I guess. Um, but I mean, he's, he's, I guess it's one of these ones he's always fancied doing it. It's, uh, yeah, I don't know what age Hannibal was when he led the uh, his, his army I on reckon elephants he over died the Alps. At no more than 40. 
Yeah, but I mean, forty at that time. Of year, it's like um, it's like you, you look at like what thirty-five, what thirty-five-year-old looked like in the seventies compared to what a thirty-five-year-old looks like now. Do you know what I mean? When mm. let's see, Carth Hannibal was a Carthaginian general. He lived to be sixty-six. Holy fuck! Um, and his whereabouts are the elephants? When did he lead the elephants over the Alps? I mean, he was forty odd when he did the uh, the Alps thing. So yeah, I mean, we're, we're asking Denzil to belie his age, probably as much as he ever has done here. But I, I'm genuinely interested in seeing him play Hannibal in a yeah. In a, as long as he stops making those epic. fucking Equalizer films, I'll be happy. <laughs> I like the first one. Yeah, the uh, first one was fine, but another fucking two. Yeah. I'm going to kill this guy with a pencil and then I'm going to kill this guy with some glass oh, fuck off man like, just trying to be John Wick but not John Wick yeah I mean I'm, I'm genuinely interested in seeing that so that's that's all the news uh, I had uh, that, that's um, it's Antoine Fuqua he's working with again, again. oh for fuck's sake <laughs> that film is going to be fucking shit the elephants will have fucking M9s <laughs> I, I mean look I like some of the films Anton Fuqua's made. He's not the first person I would think of to, to make a Roman epic, but you know maybe Ridley Scott was busy. I don't know. Um, we'll see. Any did that? Any other news come up for you, or was that it? it, nah, it I think it's, it's, it's been quite a quiet one. Yeah, I think we covered those. The next thing we cover is uh, new releases, uh, where we talk about any films that are going to be released from the day Double Real Monthly comes out to one month after that. So from November the 25th onwards, uh, what new what new releases have caught your eye, mate? From November the 25th onwards. So that doesn't include Napoleon, does it? Yeah, I mean, I, well, obviously, I think we'll have to mention Napoleon quickly. That comes out on the 22nd. We mentioned it last month, but we haven't. We can't watch it yet because we're recording this before... Um, the actual 25th. I'm planning to go and see that. Um, so we are going to be discussing it next month. It is the last big, I think the last really big production of the year. Um, are you going to try and get out to see it? I know you've got a lot going on at the moment. Yeah, I know that we're, uh, we're going to go see the um, the new Hunger Games prequel tonight, mm. actually, Yeah. as we're recording. And then I'll uh, see if we can find a day to go see um, Napoleon. Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited for it. I mean, it, it is coming out on streaming soon, but like Killers of the Flower Moon, Apple is uh, giving these films a genuine box office-like window, a genuine sort of theatrical release, uh, and it's it's Ridley Scott, and it's a you know it's it's a Napoleon film, a Whacking Phoenix. I'm definitely going to go and see it. Um, and the other one that's before the 25th, but it's just before, is Wish. Uh, it's Disney's last big kind of um, release uh, of the year. Who it's, gives a fuck? It'll be shite. Yeah, um, it's it, it's sort of about someone you know the you know magical wish making stuff. It's a solid enough premise for a film, um, but ten years ago you would think it was pretty much a done deal that Disney would make a successful film out of that. Less so now. We talked about that in our big conversation that, that all of their animated films have failed this year. So you know it'll depend on the execution if there's a breakout song. But if you were gonna if you were going to bet the odds, the odds are this is going to do as as poorly as all the other Disney films have done, right? Um, yeah, I've got no faith in them doing 
a good job of anything. No, because so. it's Disney and they've been fucking up everything they do. So yeah, yeah that's those are the, the sort of the slightly before the release window. But what, what's caught your eye aside from that that's coming out in the next kind of uh, month? Anything? Anything getting you going? No, I think it is all eyes on how Napoleon's going to do because we don't really have any reviews for it yet. Um, no, they're, they're keeping a lid on it really. Um, there are a couple of things coming out uh, in. in in that month, which might be interesting. There's a film called Eileen, which is a mystery thriller about a woman who works at a prison facility. She makes friends with a new work colleague, but things take a sinister turn. I like the cast. I know you're not keen on on Hathaway, Anne Hathaway, but I think she's very good. And Thomasin McKenzie's in it as well. I think she's brilliant. And the guy who directed it is William Oldroyd, and he made a film called Lady Macbeth with Florence Pugh, which was really good. Um, it's I reckon that that's going to be potentially interesting if it, if it works. There's another film called uh, Femme, which is a British thriller about a gay man whose life is destroyed by a homophobic attack and decides to take revenge. Um, that has the potential to be interesting if they make a real kind of cat and mouse kind of revenge thriller with that slightly new spin on it. That's got George Mackay from 1917 in it and Nathan Stewart Jarrett from Misfits, which both those actors are kind of reasonably well-known to British audiences. Um, December the 8th, Wonka comes out. Uh... So I've got mixed feelings about this. I don't feel like we needed a prequel to this story after we've had two versions of the original and Johnny Depp's crew did a, a did the sequel, which was the second Royal Dahl book. I feel like this has been done, right? However, it is by the people who did the Paddington films and it does have a great cast. So, Yeah, but what can we know about Willy Wonka and his fucking factory that we don't know already? Or... Well, or would we or would that we would would be better off for knowing? Do you know what I mean? If they've hit, this is a problem with a lot of these prequels is that they, they they the films the original films that come out they hint at like an interesting past that turns out to be not that interesting if you tell all of it. Do you know what I mean? If you go here's exactly what happened, it kind of takes a bit of the fun out of the having just little flashbacks, little hints of it. So I don't know if 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 it has a good review. It'll be if it if it gets good reviews and does really well. It'll be that because they got the the people who did such a good job of the Paddington films have done a good job of this. I do feel like it's not a great idea for a movie. So, speaking of not a great idea for if for a movie, there's a a, a a sequel to Chicken Run coming out. Oh, wonderful! Chicken Run: Dawn of the Nugget. It's going straight to Netflix, and only one of the people from the original like team, like production, writing, directing is involved. So that's completely ho hum. One film that I am actually a bit excited about coming out is the second part of Three Musketeers is coming out. You'll remember that I reviewed the French... This is the French kind of uh, swashbuckler. I yes. reviewed I reviewed the first part earlier in the year, the Three Musketeers, D'Artagnan. This is the follow-up. They always plan to release it. For, you know, uh, you know, soon after the other one, this is the Three Musketeers, Milady, where Eva Green's sort of villainous character gets sort of gets to take centre stage. Um I'm really. Ha- I thought this had been delayed. I, I thought this had been delayed to next year with everything that's going on. But this is now coming out on December the fifteenth, uh, which I'm, I'm very excited. I really want to go and see see this, see the, the follow up. I really like the first one. I think they were spot on. Um, December the twenty first, uh, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Is Amber Heard in that? No, not that I could see. No, I think she is in it. And is I she think really? She's just been kind of airbrushed from all the trailers. Is that right? Let's have a look at IMDb and see what that says about that. I mean, I, I'm not super enthused about this because if James Gunn doesn't care, why should we? Oh, you're right, she is in it. Oh, no, I'm I'm looking at the, the old one. Because 
like James Gunn has really made a point, you know, with the Flash and with all the other like DC films that have come out since his like taken over was announced. He's made a big point of saying, like, these aren't my films. I've just inherited these films. I don't give a shit anymore. Yeah, she is in it. She's right down the cast list, though. Well, there you go. I can't be bothered. I can't see this doing well. The people releasing the film don't care about it, and I think they're not going to... Aquaman's a fucking <clears throat> shit superhero as well. Nobody what? cares about a guy that fucking controls seahorses. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's a couple of, a couple of interesting things to finish. There's a, a film called The Boy and the Heron, which is the new Studio Ghibli film. So Hiyao Miyazaki, the genius behind Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke and all those films, has come out of retirement. He stopped making Ghibli films about 10 years ago. People have generally thought that Ghibli hasn't been the same without him. But he's come back to make one last film. Sort of, this is like his like late flourish. Just curious to see how it does. Really, uh, it might just be a bit of a footnote to the history of Ghibli. Um, uh, Taika Waititi's back to filmmaking roots. A film called Next Goal Wins, based on the true story of a really bad American Samoa football team. I think uh, I saw a trailer for that. It looks quite good. It feels like it feels like what I want more of from Taika Waititi. Right. I'm not interested in him uh, phoning it in on another Marvel film. This is feels like his um, back back in his kind of strong strong suit, right? Yeah, I don't think he was fully into the the second Thor film that he no. made. I think the first one was just him having a bit of fun with a a genre that's so kind of stereotypical, and he took it a different way. But then the second one was just a bit yeah, like he just didn't want to be there. Whereas yeah, this film that he's doing about the American Samoan football team looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, and Michael Fassbender's in it as well. So yeah, I reckon that that might be all right. Is um, he playing American Samoan? Because that's a fucking bold casting choice. No, I, I think it's based on a true story. It's the national team of American Samoan. They lost a game thirty-one nil, which is like the record defeat at international level or something. And I think Against he's Australia, something like that. And he plays the the foreign coach. You know, a lot, a lot of these lower, lower-ranked teams bring in foreign coaches to try and, you know, uh, improve, you know, improve standards. So that's why Fassbender's in it. And and finally, 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 um, Michael Mann's long-awaited Ferrari film is coming out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Michael no. Mann's last great film was nearly twenty years ago. It's got Adam Driver as Ferrari, and I saw the trailer, and it looks like he's really got pulled the stops out to make it look exciting. But we've been here before. I've been excited for Michael Mann films before, but everything that's come out after Collateral has been a huge disappointment. So I refuse to get excited about it. I'll probably catch it at some point. Yeah, I don't give a shit. <laughs> so, th- so those are the new releases that I've got. I thought I thought I'd sneak in the de- December twenty sixth ones because you know when we you know when we when we release our next one it'll just be before Christmas and people be will be a, you know we're already doing our wrapping and, and and eating turkey. So, I thought I'd sneak those last ones in. Any other? So that that's it. So I, I don't think you've got any other new ones that. No, I think that's it. Okay. We now talk about what new films or notable films we watched in the past month since we last recorded a double real monthly. Uh, James, what uh, what films have you been watching lately? I've watched a couple actually. I watched the new Mission Impossible. Yeah, what do you think? Um, yeah, I liked it, and I also didn't like it. Really? Um, 
Like, I like the idea of the the AI threat, and I like how scary that can be, and it's basically kind of reducing Ethan Hunt to, like, relying on no technology and basically just being, mm-hmm. you know, a kind of an agent or a spy. I really like that, and I thought the, the scenes in Venice were cool, and the scenes in the airport were cool, but I, spoiler, big, big spoiler, if you haven't seen it, do not listen for the next 30 seconds or so. I feel like they were riding their luck with the Rebecca Ferguson character dying because they baited her not dying within the first two seconds of the film. Or well, not the first two seconds, but the sequence in the mm-hmm. desert. And then she yeah. ends up dying in Venice. I also think it's really fucking stupid how Ethan Hunt doesn't just let Hayley Atwell die. She was a really irritating character. So another spoiler, don't listen for the next 30 seconds. He basically gets point. He gets pitted up with a choice of saving Rebecca Ferguson, who he's known for about seven years and has been on multiple world-saving missions, or Hayley Atwell, who has just been a pain in the fucking cunt the entire time he's fucking met her. I thought it was really bad writing. I thought it was really bad story, whatever, like story building, because she's basically a thief and she just steals everything and she does everything in her power to basically get... Tom Cruise killed, and he consistently keeps going back to try and save a life, and it's really annoying. It's it's not the same dynamic that we had with like Rebecca Ferguson, where like she's had like fights with Tom Cruise, and like the first um, what was the first film she was in? Was it Rogue Nation? Uh, Rogue Nation, yeah. And it was like she was still kind of working for that agency, but she was only doing her job. But she had that kind of charm about her. This this Haley Atwell thief is just a pain in the fucking balls. If you she yeah, was, I mean if you if you're if you're not on board with that, then you're going to be unhappy with that choice. Like, for sure. I really like Hayley Atwell. I think she's played some really good characters, especially uh, Peggy Carter. She's played some strong characters in this, but she seems like she's just a thief who then can just kind of re- revert to being this kind yeah. of damsel in distress. Yeah, look, I think it, it's really pathetic. I thought it was, it really like let down the film and he's, he's put all his eggs in one basket with her trying to save yeah. her life and keep her alive. I, I didn't get it at all. Yeah, look, it's, it's, a, it's a choice they made. Um, and I, I I was okay with it, but I totally understand your argument. You're not the only person who's made that argument. I think there's a there are reasons why people could could find that wrong. I think the reason they made the choice was they felt it was more consistent that Ethan Hunt would try and save Hayley Atwell because if he's got to try and save one of them, <clears throat> he figures Rebecca Ferguson's got a better chance of um, uh, fending for herself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and obviously it carries more emotional weight if she dies than if Hayley Atwell dies because if Hayley Atwell dies, who cares? Do you know what I mean? She's, you know, we've only just met her whereas we've got a lot, a lot more riding on it. And I guess there's also an element of, I guess they've had Simon Pegg in since Mission Impossible 3. They've had Ving, Ving Rhames the whole time, but we understand Ving Rhames is just like the supporting character. That's fine. He's not going to die. Yeah. Um, but, and we know... Tom Cruise isn't going to die, so there's no stakes if if nobody's in any danger. Do you know what I mean? So I think I think I think there are there are reasons why they did it, but if you're not on board, right? And also the whole background to the film is that they wanted to at this time they wanted to kind of open up that this like everyone who's in the Mission Impossible team has um, was in trouble and had to make a choice to join MI the Mission Impossible or get in trouble or you know go go to jail or, or whatever trouble they were in. And I think Hayley Atwell is the... They're trying to dramatise that by making Hayley Atwell a new, new member of the team. But I, I get it that you're not the only yeah. person 
I mean, I remember at the time going, "Oh, not Rebecca Ferguson." I really like her character, and I really, yeah. I really would have preferred her not to be killed. So, I, I, I look, I totally get it. Um, Thing is, I don't have an issue with that, and you can sort of see. I, I suppose I've made a bit more than I actually meant to of the the choice that he has to make, because obviously he's going to try and save the person that can't really fend for herself in a scenario like that. But what I didn't like is that I'm not kidding. In the hour before that, she's been nothing but a pain in the fucking ass, mm. and it was, it was just. It, it, at what point is she going to go right there are people with fucking assault rifles trying to shoot me and Ethan Hunt is the only person trying to save me maybe I should stop trying to get him killed in Rome or maybe I should stop trying to get him killed in the airport in Abu Dhabi kind of thing yeah yeah I mean they, they basically what they're doing there is they're kind of setting up the, the tension and then when they finally decide they're on the same side it's yeah, great but, but we've seen it before yeah, I know, man I you know. know yeah so look I, I get it you're not the only person who made that objection but but I mean you ha- you, did you like the kind of big final stunt and everything else to accept yeah oh, the train stuff was cool like it was a it was a really good film and the Hayley Atwell thing isn't really a big deal I just thought they could have done more with her character I like the idea of having someone that's on this massive, like, you know, against these super agents and these, like, really mm-hmm. um, deadly agents. Like, I thought, what's her name? Um, is it Palm Clementif? Yeah. I thought she was really good. It was nice to see her playing a character that wasn't the kind of ditzy one in um, Guardians of the Galaxy. And she's obviously going to have some parts play in the next film, right? Yeah, she's. I think she's going to She's gonna kind of flip to the other side, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. very fun. But, yeah, on the whole, I thought it was... It was really good. It was nice to have this kind of scary AI kind of character. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think mm-hmm. it's very topical. Yeah, it's well uh, timed. Check out the Adamsons yeah. versus uh, AI if you haven't already. Oh, nice um, bit of cross marketing, mate. Plug, well done. Plug, well plug, 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 um, <laughs> But yeah, no, I'm excited. I'm I'm not not gonna watch the second one just because I was pissed off at some just some minor things with Haley yeah, Atwell's character. Yeah, but um, yeah, I think it it was a good film. And as always, these Mission Impossible films that they. I don't know if I would say it has got better because it did seem like after Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible Two was shit. Then everyone loved Mission Impossible Three. Philip Seymour Hoffman was great, and then it got better with um, was it Ghost Protocol? Ghost Protocol, yeah. And then it got better with Rogue Nation, and then it got better with Fallout. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think, think it's, it, it's not better. top. Fo- no, it hasn't topped Fallout. That's for sure. But it's still, I would still say it was as enjoyable as Fallout. Um, Fallout still had its sort of problems for me. Um, I think you could see the Henry Cavill being the big bad a fucking mile off. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, yeah. Um, it's the the standard of these films. You know, every time you go to see one of these films, it's going to be a seven or eight out of ten, and I think mm-hmm. that's a testament um, to how good Tom Cruise is at making. Well, these I mean, films. I mean, look, th- th- there are two big action spy franchises, right? There's this and Bond, right? And this came out in 1996, so it can compare to like the last two or three. Maybe three Brosnans and all the subsequent Daniel Craig, James Bonds. How many bad Bond films have there been in that time, and how many bad Mission Impossible films have there been in that time? I don't think Bros- any of Brosnan's uh, Bond films were actually that good. Mm-hmm. I don't think Goldeneye was that good. I think people have a fonder memory of Goldeneye because they enjoyed the game on the Nintendo sixty four. Yeah, I think genuinely, I don't think it was that good a film. I remember. Look, it was it was a lot of fun when it came out, but it, it's not aged well. There's some very cheesy stuff in it, and you know, uh, yeah, I, I tend to agree. And that's and, then, and that's by far the best Brosnan Bond film as well, isn't and it? And tomorrow never dies. The less said about that, the better. And that could have been a good one. Has that not got Michelle Yeoh in it? Uh, yes, that yeah. could have been a great film. Yeah. Um, and then die another day. And then Daniel Craig, uh, Casino Royale, a hit. Quantum of Solace, a miss. Skyfall, obviously a really big hit. 
Um, Spectre, a bit shit. Yeah, Spectre. No Time to Die, I thought was quite good. So Yeah, so I mean, Mission, not... Mission Impossible has got a much better hit rate than its oh, main rival. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, so... And then, what else did I watch? I watched Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Oh, what did you think? <laughs> yeah, That's not, not on board. It. Not on board. No, it... Well, I think what was interesting about it is that my partner doesn't really watch superhero films and she really enjoyed Into the Spider-Verse. I said, look, let's put this on because she actually quite likes Spider-Man. For this. I don't know if it's because they seem to cast dashingly handsome men as the, <laughs> the lead role, but we've watched, I think we've watched all the Tom Holland ones together and she was like, yeah, I quite like that. I think it's because it's, it's not just all out action and all that kind of stuff. There's kind of like... There's more to it. It's just like a young guy at school, um, trying to navigate the world. So I said, "Look, why don't we watch the uh, the the animated one?" And she went, "The animated one? Oh, I don't know. I don't know about that." And I went, "No, trust me. It's by the guys that did uh, the Lego Movie, and they also did the the Jump Street films." And she went, "They did what?" She was really confused that these mm-hmm. people made. And I went, "Honestly, it won best picture, uh, uh, best animated picture at the Oscars." Mm-hmm. She really, really enjoyed it. And then we put on across the Spider Verse, and she was just really bored. It was like she was she wasn't getting on board with it and I could kind of see why um, it felt like we didn't see Miles Morales for ages we focused on um, the Gwen Stacy for a bit um, but I don't know it I, I mean, when I watched it, I enjoyed it, but I did feel it lacked a little bit of the freshness of the first one I think it suffered a little bit from not having like you know the quirkiness of like Nicolas Cage as as Spider Man Noir, yeah, and, and Spider Ham and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Spider Ham and um, the the, the, the anime, anime girl. One. Yeah, yeah, the anime girl. She's good as well. And I think it really suffered from not having Jake Johnson's Spider Man in it as much because he was really good in the first one. I think it was good to see that you had the super enthusiastic Miles Morales who was like, "Oh yeah, I want to be Spider Man. Look at this. This is really cool." And then you got the one who's been doing this for twenty years, and it's kind of broken. Him. Yeah, and he's got a, he's got a beer belly, and yeah, he's yeah. got you know he's got a beer belly and broken relationships, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that suffered, and it was you know what I think the for me the film turned when he came into it. And spoiler, if you haven't seen it, he's got a baby now, and he goes on all of his adventures with this cute little uh, mm-hmm. spider baby, which. Makes me think of Father Ted. <laughs> no, no, that's a crossover. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Spider Baby. Now, Dougal. <laughs> it's not going to happen though, because Graham Linehan's been cancelled. No oh, good. He's a fucking knob end. <laughs> um. So yeah, I mean, not not so not quite on board with the Cross the Spider Verse. So no? it felt quite long. Um, I really enjoyed when they went to the kind of the actual Spider-Verse and there was Donald Glover um, there. I thought that was really like funny touches. And then the, the T-Rex had me pissing myself. I thought mm-hmm. that was really for the spider T-Rex that had me on the floor. I thought that was f- fucking hilarious. I love the idea of 65 million years ago that there is a dinosaur that cuts about like that, that mm-hmm. just had me pissing myself. And I felt like it, it turned when it kind of it had the kind of plot twist, mm-hmm. but I felt like they were struggling to kind of create a film and a story before the plot twist. So the plot twist is spoiler because I don't think many people have actually seen this film. Is that Miles Morales isn't meant to be Spider Man? Um, the spider that bit him was wasn't meant to be in his universe, and um, basically everything 
they're, they're it, basically, if, if things happen that aren't canon, um, the, the world the world comes crashing down, right? And, yeah, and, so and, and, example, and the people policing the multiverse have to put it right, even if that results in innocent people being killed or whatever. Yeah, and they basically say that every Spider-Man has to have like a kind of form of tragedy in their life, mm-hmm. like, um, and it shows um, the Uncle Ben scene from the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, mm-hmm. um, and it, I don't, does it show the Amazing Spider-Man? I'm not sure, but, but, that, based... but, but then they give you what, what Gwen Stacy Ghost Spiders like, um, like her, her equivalent event in her universe, etc., etc., don't they? Yeah, so, so you get the idea. Yeah, so they're basically saying that Miles Morales um, isn't isn't really meant to be Spider-Man, but his, he's trying to stop his dad dying, and he's basically being told, no, you're not allowed to do that. Um, and from then... That's when the story sort sort of like picks up the pace. Mm-hmm. When you and, realize what's going on, yeah. And then he's basically fighting for himself against hundreds and thousands and you know millions of different Spider Men. Mm-hmm. I thought at that point, I thought, right, I really like the story. I'm on board with it, and the mm-hmm. way it ended for the part two. Um, did Did you know it was going to be part one of two when you when you went in to watch it? Now, when I read up about it, this I seemed to read something about. It was going to be called Across the Spider-Verse Part 2, but then they changed it to Beyond the Spider-Verse, or it was the other way round. I can't quite remember, but basically you know there's going to be a Part 2, and it's going to involve yeah Spider-Man, and spoiler again, the old crew come back to help him, so you got yeah. Spider-Man, Noir, Spider-Ham. Now, do you reckon they did that on purpose because they kind of knew that this film didn't have the kind of charm of the first one? Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess... I guess they've taken a punt on wanting to introduce these other characters. I think they were hoping that people would like Daniel Kaluuya's spunk, uh, punk Spider-Man. Sorry about that. Say that again. <laughs> Daniel Kaluuya's, Daniel Kaluuya, Daniel Kaluuya's punk Spider-Man. I loved his line. What's that? He goes, it's a metaphor for capitalism. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I, I thought it was a bit abrupt. And I just thought, uh, again, you watch it over the course of two. And then I guess if the old crew have lots of time in the second one, Maybe it'll feel better, but I, I, I felt like it missed them. It, I, I, I don't know what, I don't know how intentional it was for them to come back, but I felt like it missed them while I was watching it. I mean, I still enjoyed it, and like you, as as the story kind of the stakes were kind of established and the story worked towards its its conclusion of part one, I, I it really really picked up, and I really did. It really was exciting, but. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we're both agreed it's not as good as Into the Spider Verse, right? Yeah, I would much rather have had. Just him and that crew of you know the ones from the the first film, just them fighting crime, and maybe it would raise the stakes a little bit more if you could still have the storyline where things aren't canon, but you know having them on his side, you know, or or wrestling with whether to be on his side because they just turn up at the end, don't they? Yeah, it might, it would have been interesting if when he gets told that by Oscar Isaac's Spider, what's his Spider Man's name again? I can't the remember. vampire, the vampire spider, whatever yeah, something like that, yeah. It would have been interesting to see, like, oh, fuck, yeah, like, Spider-Man's meant to have this event, but at the same time, like, you've got to do... Every- you-, you can't just not let him... Because that's the whole point of Spider-Man, is that he 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 wants to do something about it. He just can't. Like, Uncle Ben gets shot by, um, you know, by a criminal, and he would have done something to stop it if he could, but he, he didn't get the chance to. I've got to be so honest, I- right? He lost his uncle. Yeah. And that felt like a, you know, like a, I thought we'd had his inciting incident 
with, with that. But look, it's look, a bit I, weird, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. look, I, I can. You know, I'm. I'm I'm looking forward to the second part. I do think, though, that they, it dropped off after the first one. And maybe it was never going to be as fresh the second time because the idea of, oh, there's Spider, Spider-Man characters from every every multiverse meeting and clashing, maybe it was never going to be as good the second time. But we'll see. We'll see what the second one's like, right? Yeah. Um, but that that was me. That was the that was the two the new films I watched oh, this very good. month. I, if we'd recorded this a day later, I could have been telling you everything about the new uh, Hunger Games film. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we'll have to save that for, for next yeah. one. I've got a few new ones. Um, I went to see Paw Patrol, the mighty movie. Christ, I bet that was good. It wasn't. It wasn't very good. Um, but obviously, I was taking your little brother to see his first ever film, so that was the fun bit, you know. He, How did he get on with it? Uh, he loved it. He sat still, watched the whole thing, was very, very engaged. I've got to say, there is a contrast between taking him to see that versus taking you to see Toy Story 2 for your first film and your sister for Shrek 2, I think, for her first film. It's not as good. But he loved it. You know, his mum thought she was going to get away with bringing a little, like, um, Tupperware container of shop-bought popcorn for the um, for the trip. And he insisted on a box of popcorn from the till. Yeah. Um, and then she's going, oh, this is stale. Shall I take it back? And I'm like, look, the film started and it's cinema popcorn. Just And he was, like, munching down handfuls of it. Just come on. It's all right. Just let him watch it. Yeah. He enjoyed it. It was fine. It was a, an improvement on the first one if you watch the first one. But... That, You're that, giving a review of the Paw Patrol. Look, 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 uh, Just uh, say it was shit. <laughs> it, it, look, it, it was it wasn't very good, um, but it did the job for him. Um, yeah, and exactly. It, it, the, the, the thing I enjoyed about it was taking him to see his first first film, and, that, and that's the main thing. Um, what, what else did I watch? Which I just watched, you know, to sort of see if it was any good to review it. Um, did you know there was a Spy Kids reboot called Spy Kids Armageddon? No. Yeah, it's straight to Netflix, and it's every bit as shit as you'd expect that is. Yeah, why did you put that on? I just idle curiosity. I think I think I was cooking dinner. Um, I can't call it a disappointment, right? Because the last two Spy Kids films were shit, and Robert Rodriguez's film career as a whole went downhill years ago. Um, so I knew it was going to be shit, but it was really shit. Wait, hold on. What do you mean? Do you mean Spy Kids 2 was shit? No, no, the last two. Spy Kids 3D and Spy Kids Game Over and Spy Kids whatever. There were two more Spy Kids. Are they Kids. not the same film? No, there's two. There's two more Spy oh, Kids films. Oh, I thought they were the same film. Yeah, they blend into the same piece of shit. In this, the kids are fine. There's, you know, two new kids. I don't I don't think the kids were the, the standout thing about the first two Spy Kids films either, actually. Um, but I mean, Gina Rodriguez and Zachary Levy as the mum and dad, they're no match for Carla Gugino and Antonio Banderas as the original parents, not even close. The whole thing's just very poorly done. I mean, this is actually, this is really bad and it's directed by Robert Rodriguez, right? So it's not like he produced it and let someone else have a go. It's really fucking poorly done. The whole thing feels like a feature length version of like a Nick Jr. show. The villain is played by a guy called Billy Magson. He's really terrible. He almost turns to camera at the end and says, I'll try and be a good boy next time, the way you get in like kids' shows for three-year-olds. It's honestly, I don't know what happened to Robert Rodriguez. You know, up to and including Sin City, he made some films that I really fucking like. 
and he's done nothing of note since. No, nothing that's even, you know, I didn't even bother to go and see Elite Battle Angel because I'd just seen so many shit Robert Rodriguez films by that point. It's amazing how far he's fallen off from how good he used to be. I've actually seen, I've seen Alita and it, it isn't as bad as you'd think it would be, Mm -hmm. but it could be a lot better. Mm. Um, that's why I would say about it. I would give it a watch and see what you think about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, straight it's... after watching Star, no. the fifth Star, a Star yeah. Kids. But it's just—I mean, it's just really weird. With them. I mean, he did—he did. The rot was starting to set in with Once Upon a Time in Mexico when he did like the third part of his like uh, uh, mariachi uh, trilogy, and that's just so self-indulgent. You just think, uh... but then he came back with Sin City, and you think, oh, he's still got it, he's still got it, but then. Him, him and Tarantino did Grindhouse together and Tarantino did Death Proof and went, okay, I probably need to get back to what I'm good at now. And he came back with Inglorious and Django and Hateful Eight and Once Upon a Time on Hollywood. He's like, made a bad film his, his, his little dip is gone. And But Robert Driggers doubled down. And Planet Terror is not as bad as Death Proof, but it's still like, you know, all the little kind of jokey asides, like, oh yeah, we lost a reel of film, so you're not going to see half of what happens in the film. It's like all stupid stuff. And he's just gone, he's just gone downhill from there. It's, Honestly, it's 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 a shame because the first two Spy Kids films were good films for kids. I remember taking you to see at least the first one in the cinema, possibly both at the cinema, and they were they were good films. They're exciting films to watch. Yeah. Um, but this is uh, this is poor. So oh, look, that's that's that. I mean, it was it was shit. I knew it was going to be shit. More on the kind of serious end of things. I did go and see Killers of the Flower Moon. Okay, uh, and. I, look, I loved it. I thought it was really, really good. Um, it is... I would say it's his best film since Wolf of Wall Street because it's the first film he's done since Wolf of Wall Street where you can completely see, yeah, that story needed telling. Do you know what I mean? That film needed making. So it completely understand why he was as determined as he was to make it. Silence is part of Scorsese's whole thing where he's exploring faith and stuff. And I, I you know, his his interest in that area is sincere and is responsible for some very good films. But yeah, and you know, Irishman is like, really, you're doing that again? This is like, wow, this is a genuinely different story. Right from the yeah. start, it's really striking because you you basically have a little prelude. Oil is discovered on Osage. Native American land, which makes them the wealthiest people in America. You see oil fields on what looks like an Indian reservation. You see Native Americans in expensive 1920s cars and, and finery. And you go, wow, this is this is a world I did not know existed, right? And then you find out the story about it in that the law said that Native Americans were deemed not competent to control their own wealth. So they had to have a white guardian. And guess what? Those white guardians exploited them. Not only that, the white guardians were murdering them to take their property. And it's like, fucking hell. I mean, it's like, it's almost as if to say in the 18th and 19th centuries, there wasn't quite enough genocide of Native Americans. So we just have to fucking do it again because we noticed there were a few of them left. So we're really going to try and finish them off. And it's an absolutely unflinching account of how, and it's not as violent as, as I don't mean unflinching in the sense that it's like as violent and gory. It's nothing like as violent as something like Goodfellas. It's just unflinching in its portrayal of how cruel and evil and selfish these white people were at doing this to these Native Americans. It's honestly, there's no redemption. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio was very good as the central character. He's essentially under the thumb of Robert De Niro's character. Robert De Niro is terrific, really, really good as this kind of, uh, you know, the, the guy is making Leonardo DiCaprio marry into 
the family so we can run a scheme on them. Um, I think the honours honors taken by Lily Gladstone, who plays the Native American woman that um, Leonardo DiCaprio marries and uh, you know her sisters uh, you know one of them's already dead another one gets murdered in the course of the film and you think oh my god what's going to happen here is anyone going to is anyone going to be sort of redeemed or saved in this film it's really really well done there's as, as always with Scorsese there's some shots which are absolutely astoundingly beautiful and the way he tells the story it does accumulate this power when you realize just how much these people have been betrayed and it's all based on a true story it's all based on a very well sourced um, non-fiction book which tells you about all that's happening it's full of good actors uh, uh, Brendan Fraser comes in for, for a few bits and is like channeling like Ned Beatty from Network which is a reference for old people like me he's really good uh, Jesse Plemons is very good as the you know the, the guy from the, the emerging FBI it's a very very good very well made movie and it's exactly what you want Scorsese to be doing and I think it's great that Scorsese's managed to scrape together 200 million dollars to make a film like this and tell a story that needed to be told um have you seen the debate about the runtime uh I know that it's controversial isn't it? like three and a half hours long yeah so my favorite film of all time is Once Upon a Time in America which is just under four hours long so I have no problem with the film being as long as this yeah Having said that, I don't, the pacing at times felt off. I don't. I'm not one of those people who goes, "Oh, I don't like long films." It's like I, lo- I love long films. I, I'm more than happy to watch a long film because yeah. I'm getting more of the story I want. I just felt like the pacing of this was off. I felt like the Scorsese of previous series would have sort of cut together or done a montage or tightened up the scenes for some of these things to give you a bit more pace in the story. Like in Goodfellas, where the and, and, and Casino, when you see exactly what's happened to them and, and all the pieces fall into place at once, and you realize the trouble that everybody's in. I think there was, it could have done with a bit more of a sense of urgency around it. I, I think Scorsese wanted to say, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing a Wolf of Wall Street here. I'm not even going to try and suggest that there's anything exciting or compelling about what these people are doing. It's just straight up evil. Because um, he's been accused of making the life in Goodfellas and the life of like Jordan Belfort seem like fun, like maybe that's why he's like endorsing it. And Scorsese's like, how do you think I'm fucking endorsing it? I'm showing you how terrible these people are. And this time he's just like, I am going to show you just nothing but unremittingly how um, how evil it all was. I do feel though that part of it is after all those years with you know wankers like like the listener said, or wankers like. Harvey Weinstein leaning over his shoulder, forcing him to cut 20 minutes out of his film, right? And also the fact that this film's going to probably be seen by, you know, more on streaming than in the cinema, or at least for longer on streaming than on the cinema. I mean, Apple doesn't have as many subscribers as others, that perhaps it's, um, he just went, oh, I, I don't care. I don't, I'm going to make this as long as I want. I mean, he, he's a very skilled film editor himself, and he's working with Thelma Schoonmaker, possibly the greatest film editor of all time. So it's not a case of they were not capable of editing the film to the right length. They chose to put out the film they put out, right? And I'm, I don't want to get into the whole... The, the, it's still a terrific film. It's still a very, very, very good film. I just feel like it feels like a film which belongs on streaming a little bit with at that pace. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, but a very good movie. Good movie. No complaints. Uh, oh, I, I do want to catch it when it comes out. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the other one was David Fincher's The Killer. 
Yeah, I'm not too fussed about that one. No, you see, I wanted to see if I could go and see this at the cinema, right? But Netflix put it out on like three screens across the whole country for about five minutes. And if they're not putting that much effort into showing it, I'm not sure why I should kind of completely bend my schedule out of shape to go and watch it when it's sitting there on Netflix to watch. So I watched it on Netflix. I didn't, you know, break my back to go and see it at the cinema. Um, I was really looking forward to this because I am a David Fincher fan. Uh, and I'm a big fan of the original graphic novel that it's based on. I am, however, conscious whenever a David Fincher film comes out that he makes the film he wants to make, tells the story he wants to tell, and it's up to you whether that story engages you or not. Like, I wasn't all that engaged by um, uh, Benjamin Button, and while I thought uh, Social Network was a very, very, very good film, we talked about this a few times now, that's still just a story about people falling out in the boardroom. Do you know what I mean? So as engagingly as he tells that story, it's still just the story of tech billionaires falling out. Do you know what I mean? So there's yeah. always a risk with Fincher that he tells a story that isn't going to necessarily be for you. But I mean, I love the... care, to be honest. Yeah, and he, yeah, he, does, he gives no fucks, right? He makes the movie he wants to make, right? Now, I'm also a big fan of Hitman films. I've talked about the American gross point blank... Um, you know, I just ordered the Criterion Collection Blu-ray of um, Le Samurai starring Alain Delon because I want that. That's a classic. I'm, I'm into this kind of movie. So I obviously enjoyed it because it's got lots of stuff that I like. Um, the thing is, there's a few different things you can do with that basic story about Hitman. You can make it a comedy. You know, Gross Point Blank is a comedy about Hitman going to his high school reunion, right? Nikita and Leon are like overly lush and sort of, um, you know, almost sentimental action films. John Wick's about a hitman, do you know what I mean? So is Collateral. Uh, you know, in Bruges, Pritzi's Honor, Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai. I'm, I'm, I know I'm just listing names of films now, but it's just to stress what a wide variety of stories you can tell. So it's not enough for it to just be a hitman film. What kind of hitman film is um, Fincher telling? And he's doing this kind of like very meticulous and austere look at a ruthless hitman in the process of how he goes about his kills. And he's also, it's an unreliable narrator thing, similar to something like Gone Girl, where he t his voiceover is all, you must show no emotion, you must show empathy, you must just do the thing, you must just like complete your assignment. Do you know what I mean? And yet the whole story is about him taking revenge for uh, his, his girlfriend being attacked. So his voiceover is saying one thing, his actions are saying another. Do you know what I mean? Because he's acting for personal like revenge motivation and, and basically breaking all his own rules. Fastbender's good. Tilda Swinton steals the, the film for the bit that she's in it. Technically and aesthetically, it's brilliant because Fincher... You know, you know yeah, the story. You know, ben Affleck kind of pulled out one kind of like... He, uh, he changed the, this, the gel on, this, uh, on the, on camera the camera from, like one level of green to the next level, level of, of green, green and Fincher like, noticed what? he's got such a good eye um I felt it stripped down too far okay um there was some stuff in the original that I think would have really enhanced this story now I know we should always review the film they make not the film you wanted them to make but there's a whole thing there's this really brilliant scene quite early on in the graphic novel of the killer where he's waiting so long to carry out his hit that he starts to unravel and he actually gets very close to killing himself he actually puts a gun to his head He's that close to killing himself. And for the whole rest of the story, you're watching this guy, you know how close he is to kind of um, tipping over the edge. He's on the brink of madness and self-destruction. And I just didn't get that in this. I got a very, very controlled story. And I think David Fincher took what he wanted from the original story. He went, you know, I like the idea of this person who is essentially a mercenary. He's, he's He can only do a job when someone gives him money to do this particular assignment. Yeah. 
and while he feels like he does it, he's, he's a great artist at what he does, he's still a mercenary at the mercy of what other people want him to do. Obviously, David Fincher identifies with that part of it as a film director doing what he does the way he does it, right? So he's obviously interested in that part of this guy's psychology. I was interested in a different part of his main character's psychology, so I did struggle with that. But it's very, very well made and very well done because it's David Fincher. It's a perfectly decent way to spend two hours. It is not David Fincher's best film by any stretch. Okay. Um, and just, just quickly, last one is um, is Reptile. Um, Reptile is Benicio del Toro did a film uh, which I, th I think it's always been for Netflix, although it got shown at some film festivals. It's a police procedural. He plays a cop who's recently been exiled from the big city to a small town. Um, when he gets to the small town, uh, the girlfriend of an estate agent played by Justin Timberlake has just been murdered. He's got to investigate and all sorts of secrets come out. It's got a solid cast, Eric Bogosian, Alicia Silverstone, uh, the, the bald white guy from The Wire, people you recognise in every part. Decent movie, atmospheric, but it's basically just your standard police procedural. So if you like that kind of movie, you're in good shape. Uh, if you don't, um, it, 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 you know, it is what it is. I, I like that kind of thing, so I like this film, but it's not, it, it doesn't cross over. And, and frankly, not everything has to, right? It, not, not every movie has to be any more than a good example of its own genre and that's what this is uh i if i wasn't a fan of police procedural films i wouldn't have liked this film but then i wouldn't have watched it either so it it does its job if you like that kind of thing That's the films I watched this month. Was there anything else on your list that occurred while I was uh, going through my um, my watches? No, it was just uh, there was two pretty big ones. To be yeah, fair. yeah, definitely um, big ones. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think it's time for the resolutions, isn't it? It is the resolutions. Yeah. So we have two resolutions. Um, I have one twelve month project, which is the Cronenberg Institute, where I watch various Cronenberg films. James, you have a a, a project, uh, a resolution named to you by the audience and uh, com uh, identified for you by the audience called Legal Cage of Consent. Uh, tell us tell us what that's all about. Just watch one Nicolas Cage film a month. Um, and the interesting really? thing is how, how the, that film is chosen. So I go online to the Cage Generator um, and it just randomly spits out a Nicolas Cage film to me. Yeah, so I've got, I mean, there's only two more to do, one for November, one for December. I've got my fingers crossed for one or two Cage films, which you get, which I don't, I don't want to say, I don't, I'm, but I'm interested to see what comes up. What what was chosen for you for your penultimate um, Cage album? <sighs> I don't want to let you down, but it was The Croods. <laughs> <laughs> That's neither one thing nor the other, really, is it? Um, is he Does he have a big part in that, or does he just play like a supporting role or something? I didn't even watch enough of the film to be able to answer that question for you. <laughs> oh dear. So he's, I mean, he must just be one of the voice cast, right? I think he is one of the top build, but yeah, I wasn't watching that shit, man. I can't believe I got nominated for best animated film. Yeah. I mean, it's never best animated film. I mean, it's all right. It's a perfectly decent watch, but it's just kind of, it is a little bit sort of reminiscent of like the Flintstones. It's like, take the typical, like, you know, American sitcom family and put them in prehistory. Um, yeah, Nicolas Cage is the, he's the dad. So he's the main, he's the main character. He's the main dad character. Um, Emma Stone is his teenage daughter. Ryan Reynolds is a teenage cave boy. I mean, this isn't, 
this isn't the career pinnacle of anyone involved, is it? No. Uh, what was it? Was it? It was DreamWorks and Fox, wasn't it? So it was when this. I mean, this wasn't really competing with the great film. I mean, that's part of the golden age of animation. That wasn't really. Um, uh, it wasn't really competing, was it? Even though it was nominated at that year, I think we were past the peak of the golden age of animation. Yeah, Fro- yeah Frozen won that year, and you had Despicable Me Two, which is quite good. You had The Wind Rises, which is the last great Studio Ghibli. But yeah, it's they're on the downhill stretch here, aren't they? Yeah. So, oh well. Uh... So yeah, look. I mean, it's not. No one, no one lists that as a Nick Cage film you must watch out of his great films, his action films, or his crap films. It's just uh, there and there and nowhere, right? Any anything to add? And any thoughts on the film when you watched it? No, it's just fucking. Nobody cares about a family of prehistoric humans. Well, not it's not since the Flintstones sixty years ago. Right? <laughs> I'm not being funny. If the Flintstones came out today and it was a new thing, nobody would give a shit. It was no, just the sixties and it's fuck done. all was on the telly. Yeah, it's done. It's 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 an idea that's had its time, right? Didn't they do a sequel? They did a sequel to this, didn't they? And a yep. television series. Yeah. So yeah, no. <laughs> it did um out of interest, it did nearly six hundred million dollars at the box office. Yeah. Christ. Christ on a fucking bike. It's it's funny though when you with the, what, what the one thing interesting with this is when it makes you look back on the films that came out that year and when if you went what are the big films of 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 twenty thirteen you wouldn't have said the Crudes would you? No. Because Marvel's in full swing. You're still getting some Pixar. Um. Yeah. I mean, it is what it is. It's not. Yeah. I feel. I feel like we're. <laughs> With your permission, mate, I hope you don't mind. I'm I'm planning on on doing your segments of of your cage project as a special episode, the way I release my um you know my Kubrick jump <laughs> capture and everything. So oh, I, I, f- I feel like I feel like I'm stretching it out so they have more than like thirty seconds for this film. But there's really not a lot to say, is there? No, really isn't, man. No, I mean the Crude was number fourteen in the box office. I mean it's just it's just a nothing film. It's not a big flop. It's not terribly bad. It's not terribly good. It's just eh. Well, there you go. Um, Nick Cage probably paid some bills with that. I'm actually I'm actually going to see a Nick Cage film uh, in the next few days, which I'll be talking about next month. It's that new one, Dream Scenario. Oh, okay. He plays a uh, like a, a a nerdy put upon uh, college professor. Who and everyone, everyone who knows him starts to see him in their dreams, and then everyone in the world starts to see him in their dreams, and he becomes like a global celebrity without doing anything. Okay. I feel like it's in the like being John Malkovich kind of weird like headspace like that. So I'm hoping that's going to be good, but no one's going to be talking about the Crudes once we stop talking about it right now. <laughs> Exactly. That's the last right. time anyone will ever talk. All right. About All right. Movies. So goodbye to the Crudes. I will now do my resolution, which is the Cronenberg Institute. Uh, it, as always, I I do like a little curated list every year that I've chosen. I've done John Carpenter, I've done Kubrick, and now I'm doing Cronenberg, where I've picked twelve films of his, nine that I'd not seen before to complete my big filmography of him, and I'm now in the bit where I'm doing some classic Cronenberg. Um, and the one I'm doing this uh, this month is uh, Dead Ringers from 1988. Now, last month we did The Fly, which was the first Cronenberg film I'd ever seen, which I saw because it was a horror 
video that everyone was watching when I was young and turned it on. Wow, this actually struck me. So I started to find out about David Cronenberg. This is the second one of his I saw, Dead Ringers, which again, I found out... I, th at the point that I'm watching this film for the first time, I'm, I'm, I'm not really jumping on board and watching all of Cronenberg's films. I watched this film because... Jeremy Irons had just won the Oscar for Best Actor for Reversal of Fortune in 1990. And in his like winner's interview, they said, do you think this is your best work? And he said, no, my best work is in Dead Ringers from 1988. It's a David Cronenberg film where I play twins. And I went, okay, well, if Jeremy Irons says that's his best film, I might tune into that and see what, see what it's all about. So I'm watching a David Cronenberg film where he plays. Let me just, I made a note that I want, I want to capture the, the summary of this properly. Um, he plays twin brothers, Elliot and Beverly Mantle, who are not just twins, but live together, poses each other, including to women they go out with, and they both study science and work as gynecologists. Right. Um, they are in a codependent relationship. Beverly is the sensitive, almost sickly twin who, you know, barely, you know, he's shy and tortured. Elliot is the more assertive and almost slightly cold and sinister of the twins. He's the one who goes out and seduces women, pretends to be his brother, and then hands them over to to Bev. Um, you know, he basically says, you'd be a virgin if I didn't chat up these women for you. They get involved with an actress who's desperate to have children, but has an abnormally shaped cervix. That's why she's come to them. She's a gyne you know, she needs a gynecologist. The assertive brother seduces her, um, pretending to be his his sort of... Uh, timid uh, twin gives it to his brother as a girlfriend it's hinted that you know like you say Bev is you know you're not sure who's you know more capable with women in that sense but you maybe get the feeling that if Elliot does the work to chat them up maybe Bev, Bev is the nicer one to be with do you know what I mean uh, they're completely unethical they sleep with their patients they sleep with women who think they're sleeping with the other brother so even though the younger brother is like timid and and and, and seems more sympathetic he's still completely complicit in this kind of really weird cycle of behavior it comes out that the actress finds out that they've been sharing her and she didn't know which one she was sleeping with half the time she goes ballistic understandably tells him to fuck off the the, uh, the weaker twin beverly is broken by this and gets into drugs the other brother realizes he can't function without his brother and tries to get him off the drugs. But in the end, he gets into drugs as well. They go into a downward spiral. They start to hallucinate about mutant women. They develop new, strange and terrifying surgical instruments for their jobs as gynecologists. And drugged up and we're having nervous breakdowns, they try and operate on women with these uh, uh, new uh, implements, which freaks everyone out and gets them in trouble. And it's about their downward spiral and then the complete mess they get into. Um, you want to know the maddest thing about this film? It stars Meryl Streep. Yeah, it's based on a true story. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, for fuck, everything I've just read to you. Now, I'm sure Cronenberg has added details. I'm not sure if they invented surgical instruments which look absolutely terrifying in the film, by the way. Okay. But the the basic plot line that happens in this film is true. There were twin gynecologists who got into drugs and couldn't function without each other and went into this terrible downward spiral. Cronenberg, I think, has, uh, you know, invented a story based on that idea. But the, the, the fundamental central plot line is a true story, which fucking blows my mind. Um, 
Jeremy Irons is absolutely amazing as the twins. You completely believe that there's two different people up there on screen. You believe that they're two different characters. He talked when he was talking about the performance that one of them walks on the balls of his feet, one of them walks on the heels of his feet. But it's so much more than that. You can see that, honestly, you go, yeah, that's him, that's Beverly, that's Elliot. Honestly, you, his, his performance portraying bringing two different but twin you know physically identical people to life absolutely amazing his his performance is in absolutely amazing so good um the special effects are great there is no cgi used there to expose the film twice so what would happen was jeremy irons would walk down a corridor you know on the left hand side and then in the next take you'd walk down the corridor on the right hand side and they would have to superimpose the film on top of it you never see the join but there's no cheating where you're looking over the shoulder of a double for one guy's dialogue and then jeremy irons sits into jeremy irons talks to jeremy irons in the movie and you completely fucking believe it's happening and david cronenberg's kind of very kind of objective kind of naturalistic realistic filming style makes you 100 percent believe in what you're watching and you know it's a chilling as always he's quite detached and doesn't judge but because he kind of tells it like it is you know and doesn't spare the details you do find yourself sympathizing they're damaged people they do completely terrible things but they're damaged people and you you sympathize with their terror of being without each other and that kind of thing so as mad and detached from reality as this gets it always feels realistic which makes when there is some blood and gore and things going horribly wrong. Makes it all the more, more disturbing and chilling. It's just a really, really very good film, which puts all of Cronenberg's skills to really good use. It also shows him moving out of body horror, but still using what he learned from body horror to still make really disturbing stories. It gives you an idea of what the direction he would go in. It's no surprise that the guy who did this went on to do The Naked Lunch and Crash. Um, but it is the sign of him taking that very meticulous directing skull and exploring disturbing themes, but in a new way. Um, he, I still love his his weird, crazy stuff like Videodrome and and The Fly and, and Naked Lunch and stuff. But this is the work of a really fucking good director, really kind of hitting his peak. It's a really, really terrific good film. It's just it's such a well done story and and so mad, so mad that any of this, if any, if one percent of what David Cronenberg puts on screen actually happened, it, this is a fucking weird world we live in. That's all I can say. Um, and I, honestly, I believe it. Um, they've made this into a series with Rachel Weisz, the first agenda of the twins. I've heard it's very good. I haven't watched it yet, but I will. Uh, good movie. Just a really, really good movie. Uh, and as always, in honour of um, uh, the, the the Cronenberg entry, I always do an impromptu top 10 inspired by it. And um, because Jeremy Irons said that, you know, he should have won an Oscar for this performance rather than the one he did, I've got an impromptu top 10 of performances that Oscar winning actors should have won for instead of the film they did win for. So, uh, Al Pacino, The Godfather Part 2, or half a dozen others instead of um, Scent of a Woman. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, The Wolf of Wall Street. Paul Newman, The Verdict. Whoopi Goldberg, The Color Purple. Denzel Washington, Malcolm X. Kate Winslet, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Jack Lemmon, The Apartment. Jeff Bridges, The Big Lebowski. Tom Hanks, Big and Henry Fonda, The Grapes of Wrath. Uh, whatever you think of what performance people should have won for or not, that's that's 10 good films right there, if you haven't watched any of them. So uh, that's my impromptu top 10, and that's what I have to say about Cronenberg this month. Uh, anything else to add before we wrap up Double Room Monthly, mate? No one thanks, no one, mate. Very good, that's us. That's all for the latest edition of Double Real Monthly. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson.
The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. The latest penalty shootout film quiz will be released in a few days. Next week, we'll be back with our regular features. First up will be our classics and recommended feature where we finally get around to watching The Brotherhood of the Wolf. Then our hidden gem where we tell you why you should get around to watching Werner Herzog's Rescue Dawn. In The One That Got Away, we'll tell you about Steven Spielberg's initial attempt to make The Trial of the Chicago 7, and in the remake Hate Watch, we look at 2007's completely unnecessary film, The Invasion. We look forward to you joining us then. Look after yourselves in the meantime, and see you on the other side.